0: Hello fellow music nerds. Welcome to season 2 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host Steve Dawson coming to you from the Henhouse Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey folks, welcome music makers, and soul shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from historic Nashville, Tennessee. This is episode number 53 and is also the final episode of season two. It's been stretched out a bit this season due to a long, lengthy break in the middle where I could not possibly keep up with doing these. It takes a long time and I had to work for a living um, making music so and touring and recording records and things like that. Anyway, here we are at the end of 52 interviews, uh, 26 this season, and it's been amazing talking to these people and bringing these episodes to you. It's also been fantastic to hear from so many people that have been digging the episodes and getting into them, whether they're new to the program or returning people coming in and listening week after week. I really appreciate all the feedback and all the people listening from across the world. Before we get going here, I need to reach out and ask for some help in keeping this podcast up and running. So far, I've been relying on one-time donations from all of you to help me with the show's overhead, which is much appreciated from all of those who have contributed, and you can still do that. But I've set up a new way that you can be an ongoing supporter of music makers and soul shakers. Over these final six episodes of Season 2, I'd like to encourage you all to head over to the Patreon page that I've started for the podcast. You'll find it at patreon.com slash Makers and Shakers. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Makers and Shakers. Many of you know about Patreon already, but for those who don't, it's a way for you, the listener, to kick in and support the show on a monthly basis rather than a one-time donation even if it's as little as a buck a month. It's simple and secure. I'd like to quickly explain what the overhead is on a show like this. For regular listeners, you'll know that the show's unique content is not just an interview format, but music clips are also used to demonstrate what we talk about on the show. And that's what makes the show cool and different, but it's what also makes the show, on the production side, time-consuming. The editing and everything involved on an absolute minimal basis takes us about four to six hours per episode, which I currently pay someone to do. Then there's the hosting of the files, the launching and promotion of each episode, which, while not extravagant, is just an expense that I can no longer really handle on my own. I love doing this podcast, and so I'm throwing it out there to you, my listeners, from over the last couple of years to help me by kicking in a little bit each month. As I said, even as little as a dollar a month would help. Um, There are some exclusive rewards that start happening at the $5 per month level and going up from there. And together we can keep the show going. So we're going to see how this Patreon campaign goes. And if we hit our goal over the next six weeks or come pretty close, we will know that there are enough people out there willing and able to keep making it happen. And we'll keep bringing it on for you. Once again, the site can be found at patreon.com slash makers and shakers. As always, you can also make a one-time donation, if you'd rather, at my website and the podcast home at stevedawson.ca. And we can also always use your help in spreading the word by leaving us a review or comments on the iTunes Store podcast page. Thank you all for listening and supporting. I'd also like to make one more shout-out to my cohorts in this podcast. Uh, Jeremy Holmes, based in Vancouver, helps me out with some of the research for these. And Michael Glusak helps me do the editing and song placement. And their help on this show has been huge. So thanks to those guys, and thank you for listening, of course. And now let's move on to episode 53. This is my conversation with the great Greg Leese, one of the most recorded, I would say, guitar and pedal steel players in the last 30 years. Uh, he's a Los Angeles-based musician, and he's played on so many amazing records. I couldn't even possibly begin to list them all, and therefore I'm not going to. But a lot of work with Bill Frizzell, of course. Amy Lou Harris, Cheryl Crow, Katie Lang, Amos Lee, John Mayer, Eric Clapton, Joni Mitchell, Randy Newman, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so anyway, he does a lot of amazing work, and uh, he is also a bit of a mentor for me. He was the guy that, when I was playing guitar and slide guitar and and dobro and lap steel, I was always really fascinated by the pedal steel, but it was a little intimidating for me to think about learning it and at one point I just decided to dive in and get into it and um, being Canadian I got a grant at that point from, from the government uh, being a, a musician with a bit of a track record in history. I wanted to take some time away from work and focus on learning something new and so I got a bit of a grant to study the pedal steel and part of that was to work with Greg leese and so I spent, I don't know, the better part of a year probably working on the pedal steel from the ground up. And after a few months of that, I went down and worked with Greg, he was kind enough to teach me. And we just kind of um, played for hours and hours. And he showed me lots of things. And I recorded it. And I transcribed it. And it was just a really amazing experience for me as a musician, sitting across from one of my heroes, and learning what I could from him. And yeah, I mean, I've got hundreds of pages, actually, of transcriptions of things that he showed me and played. In the meantime, he was a great teacher for me. And I have the utmost respect for Greg as a musician and session guy and sideman and all the things that he does. So that's a bit of my personal history with Greg. Uh, As far as his professional history goes, he came up through a really interesting scene in the in Southern California, and um, played a lot of blues and rock and country music and in his early days he was playing with a band called the funky kings which he's going to talk a little bit about today um, a really interesting band and then he worked shortly after that with the great dave alvin who's also been on this show and of course he had a long stint with Katie lang and he recorded and toured with kd for years and that's really what what opened the floodgates for him for being a session guy and he's played on so many amazing records since since then. In the last few years, he's been really busy with Bill Frizzell and Jackson Brown, and that's pretty much where you will see him these days. He tours a lot. He always has. He's a very interesting guy and a musician, and I'm really excited to be able to share some of his stories with you here today. So I've been talking to Greg for a while about hooking up to do this, and uh, because of his busy schedule, it's been really hard to pull that off. But we have accomplished the unaccomplishable, and he joins me this week over the phone from his place in LA. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I got to say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a sewn bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs great tones, and the best fuzz effects going, too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. So, with that, I take you to my conversation with the one and only Greg leese Hi, Steve. Hey, man. How's it going? Going good. Why don't we start just by talking a little bit about what you're doing lately. Like, It seems like every time I talk to you in the last year, you are heading out somewhere with Jackson Brown. Is that kind of your main live gig these days?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, I, that's, I've been doing that a lot over the past couple of years. Um, I'm, most of the times when Jackson is playing live, I'm with him and he tends to work, he has worked quite a bit over the past few years. So um, that, I think that and the other thing that I've been, that I've been doing a fair amount of is playing with uh, this uh, one of Charles Lloyd's groups.
0: Yeah, so. I mean, I've
1: been doing a fair amount of that too.
0: How did that come about? Was that through that record that you guys did with Bill and, and Charles Lloyd? Was that how that started?
1: Well, it started by Bill working with Charles. Um, uh-huh. he, he did some shows with Charles, some quartet shows, I think, um, and uh, and then Charles told Bill at some point they had in a conversation that he that he'd like to have some slide guitar. He was uh, he kind of missed having that, hearing that sound. And he grew up in Memphis, where that was a pretty prevalent thing you know in his right in his youth in 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 music that he heard, like he actually as a teenager, he played with Helen wolf and, and and other people that were kind of picking up musicians uh horn players in in Memphis and so bill you know basically said, "I know a guy that plays with me a lot, you know, and maybe <laughs> you'd like to have him come in and play so I basically just got an invitation to come and sit in on a show.
0: Oh, okay. Where where was that show?
1: It was at uh, Royce Hall at uh, UCLA in Los Angeles, which is where I live in LA. So I, since I was there, it was just convenient for me to go. So I went to a sound check, met Charles, and you know sat in on you know maybe four or five songs.
0: Were you kind of winging it, or, or was it stuff that you had prepared, or what what was the situation? I
1: really wasn't able to prepare for it very much because I didn't, even though I, I was sent um, a bunch of songs, you know, lead sheets on a bunch of songs, I, there was nearly, it wasn't clear what songs he was going to play.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I think uh, when I inquired of Dorothy, who's Charles' wife and manager, and, and she's the person that I think was reaching out uh, after Bill to, to have me come and sit in. Uh-huh.
2: Um,
1: I asked her, because she sent me a lot of music, um, if there were any particular songs that Charles was thinking that would be good for me to play on, since there was going to be no rehearsal. Her answer was, uh, after she talked to Charles, that Charles says, it's not about the music, it's about life. So that was my response and that was pretty much what I had to deal with.
2: Okay,
0: so you have to interpret that how however you will. That's good. Like that kind of gives you a a pass to just kind of like show up and and do your best winging it, which which for you probably happens a lot. You're probably really comfortable doing that, right?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that, but <laughs> 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 not in a situation like that, I wouldn't discribe, describe my my mood is comfortable at the time but i but it is basically what charles wanted um was just to have so you know to play what you hear you know it, it's like the music is out there it's in the air so you 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 basically just have to you know play to what you hear yeah and it worked out well enough that a few months later there was a couple of shows that i was invited to play as uh, as part of the group and in between those two shows we did two more shows Um, a few months after that first sit-in. And we went into a studio in Santa Barbara and recorded that album that eventually came out as Charles Lloyd and the Marbles. So there was a, a little bit of live stuff, a record, and then there's been more live stuff since then, a fair amount since then.
0: Wicked. And and how did the record come together? Um, tell me just a little bit about the sessions for that. It's such a great sounding record. Like, was it all done pretty quickly and, and live off the floor? Or, and how much rehearsal time did you get to actually dig in and really figure out the songs? Or were you just kind of going for it from take one?
1: Well, the rehearsal was just, we played a show in San Francisco one night.
0: right? Uh, <laughs> and
1: then the next day, and then we had a show in Santa Barbara two days later. Yeah. The record was recorded on the day in between.
0: So it's a one day, everything.
1: It's one day, except we went back in the studio the second day, recorded for a few hours before we went to the sound check in Santa Barbara.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, we started in the middle of the afternoon. I mean, I think Bill and I left San Francisco really early in the morning, drove to Santa Barbara, we went in the studio, recorded probably 75% of the record, and then did the the rest of it the next day.
0: Awesome. And so in that situation, like how much um, direction are you getting from Charles and how much direction are you getting from Bill and, or are you just sort of left to your own devices in that situation? Well, there's
1: no direction from Bill ever.
0: Oh really? Okay.
1: And on his records, there's no direction. So there's not going to be any direction on from Charles either. Okay. You know, Charles there, you know, Charles is basically about trying to get comfortable uh, and just have everybody play. So, I mean, we knew what the songs were. I mean, the songs were, you know, there were charts for the songs. And But as far as arrangement, the arrangements were pretty much just made up as performances on the floor.
0: So in that situation, like, do you ever sit there at the time wondering, like, am I playing too much? Am I playing too little? Nobody's really telling me anything. Or is it just, like, flowing and everything's working and you're not worried about that?
1: Well, I mean, I guess in a sense you're worried about it because you don't, you know, but but you have to get out of that headspace to be able to play. Right. And you just basically play without thinking about, should I, if you start thinking about, should I be playing here or should I be playing there? It doesn't really work to play in the right places. You sort of have to feel it and react to what you're hearing at the time. I think, I mean, that's, the best way I can describe it in terms of how comfortable you are doing it. I don't think that maybe comfort is the right word, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I, think you, I think you should be kind of,
0: you know, on the edge of your seat a little. Yeah, you got to
1: be on something like that because you don't know what's going to happen. You're just basically, you know, the music is carrying you in a sense. Uh, you're just part of the flow of, the, of what's going on.
0: Now, when you work with Bill regularly uh, uh, outside of Charles's project, so on Bill's projects that you know you guys have done so many together over the last i don't know 15 years probably you've been working together uh Mm -hmm. and and you mentioned before that he doesn't ever give you direction but do you like get to the end of the take and bill kind of like gives you a knowing smile or a wink or anything or like do you know you're on the right track or do you just assume like i guess i wouldn't be here if i wasn't doing the right thing
1: i think that's pretty much yeah just what you said that's pretty Uh much the way you got to interpret it. Bill indicates that he's happy with things by being happy in general, you know? I mean, he's, it's its something like Bill's, Bill uh, expresses his joy about playing music and his, you know, and, and his joy about who he's playing music with to people all the time, so you know that he likes what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's not really something that you're questioning about, you're not really questioning it, but you're not, well. when it's happening, you're. he needs to be in that space too. He can't be worried about signaling people or, you know, he's got to mm-hmm. be, you know, in that, in the moment. So everybody's really got to be in that space together. So yeah. he's not, he can't be worried about whether you're going to play something wrong, you know, or, or end at the wrong time or something. I think people just feel that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So with your history with him, you've done so many great records. Um, you know, I, I don't have necessarily a favorite, but one that really sticks out to me is Good Dog, Happy Man. Do you remember much about that particular session? And do you have any favorites in your, in your um, track record with Bill as far as um, a record that really felt amazing to you at the time?
1: Well, every record that I've done with Bill has been an amazing experience. Um, that record that you're referencing is the first one.
0: Oh, that was the first one.
1: I'd never played with Bill before oh, we went okay. to the studio. I mean, the day before we went in the studio was the first time I'd ever played with him, which was a, a rehearsal. As I remember it, the band was Jim Keltner and Victor Krauss and Wayne Horvitz on keyboards. So we recorded at a studio in, in Los Angeles, it's not there anymore, but Bill had sent me some sketches of some of the songs, a little acoustic sketches, which mm-hmm. I had kind of begged him to send me, so he didn't really want to send me anything before we went in the studio, but I, since I'd never played with him before, I just, you know, I, I'd asked him to send me, so he sent me some, like, you know, cassette tapes of sketches. Of of the melodies of some of the songs that he was writing, but he didn't know which ones he was going to use on the record. Um, so there was a fair amount of those for me to listen to, just so I could hear the general general, you know, ambiance of what was going to what we were going to record. Because I had no idea what the music was going to be like. Right. And it was all all the songs I played on were all his original songs. And then I just brought a bunch of stuff to the studio, and really, and and we, we kind of I, there there might have been a A song here and there where Bill might have had a suggestion of whether I should play something. Like, I think I may have played mandolin on
0: something. I don't remember. Yeah, you do play mando on that record, yeah. Um, He
1: might have suggested that I bring one and play it on a particular song um, when we got to the actual track, you know, when we actually started working on a particular song. Um, But there was a lot of, you know, I had various lap steels, pedal steel, acoustic slide stuff, so... I was just really playing a lot of slidey stuff, and then there's some mandolin, and I just sort of, whenever a song came up, I just kind of went to that instrument and then pretty much stuck to it, whatever it was.
0: <laughs> right. That's wicked. Yeah,
1: because by that time, you know, you're you're recording, and there's not really any time to, you know, to switch out. And it was done fairly quickly. I think that was probably maybe three days
0: Mm-hmm. And and would you have done all that? Live? I mean, I know Bill probably isn't much of a guy for going in and, and fixing things up or anything. But like for example, and I don't know even know if you would remember tit- song titles because it's hard to remember titles sometimes for instrumentals. But one of the problems of listening. I mean, I, if
1: I go back and you know see the record and listen to it and look at the titles, you know, then I can relate the music to the titles. But when we record the songs. I think most of the time, they're, they're, they haven't been titled yet. Oh, okay. Like He doesn't usually title his compositions until after they're recorded.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: When you get the music for it, it's got a date on the, on the top of it. Oh, really? Maybe the date that he wrote the song. Uh-huh. And he basically identifies, he has different ways of identifying songs, but when it comes down to the actual record, then he, I think he wants to hear what the, how it comes out before he has the name for it. Right, which I think is pretty cool, actually. Then because even then maybe the name isn't right, you know. Once the record's recorded,
0: the the one that really sticks out for me is is a song called "The Pioneers," where you do this yeah. so, solo that's like it seems to me like it's like the perfectly constructed pedal steel solo. And I know you're a pretty humble guy, and so you'll probably like just say, "Well, well I didn't really do that much," but it's like the perfect pedal steel solo ever. Uh, so was there no like? planning or re- rehearsing that stuff was that just totally off the cuff
1: yeah there's no no I, I i'm not doesn't really work too well for me when i come up when i compose a solo and then try to play it in the moment i'm sure on that particular song that that's just the way it went down at the time
0: uh-huh.
1: yeah there was very few overdubs i i there there may I sometimes I know that at a point Bill would sometimes go back in and he would put some something on there, some extra thing. Or maybe if he was playing electric, he might have wanted an acoustic or something or vice versa. But.
0: Yeah, there's definitely, a, there's definitely a number of tunes that have like two Bills on it. Um, but, but, the, but Bill number 2 is usually like an atmospheric, textural kind of thing that, that probably was just added on to enhance rather than to drive the song.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's I that we did do that kind of thing on that record. I remember.
0: But as far as your stuff goes, it I I, I can't think of a song where there's more than one Greg track. Where you know where the, I don't think there's like mandolin and pedal steel ever. So it's it's all just like you doing one thing and he probably just stacked something else on top of his tracks or something. Yeah, I,
1: and he would have done it probably on a different day. But I think usually he'd do the record, and then he'd he'd have a day to come back and kind of you know see if there's anything he needed to. Thought needed to be added, um, but yeah, I, I, I def, all my stuff is definitely played live with the That's band. awesome.
0: At that point, what steel would you have been using? Like one of your Emmons, or would, or like a Sierra, or what was your steel of choice back at that point?
1: Well, I would have had an Emmons. I think uh, most of it. I'm sure that song that you're talking about, Pioneers, that's definitely the Emmons. Okay, but I did play. The Sierra, I think, on that album. I had a Sierra. I don't have it any longer, but I had a Sierra 12 string that I played that I got in the early 90s. So I was, you know, I had only had it for maybe eight, seven, eight years when we did that yeah. record in 98. Anyway, and then I had a show bud that I think I used on that record too. If But if not, I used it on Blue's Dream on something. And these days you also use a Williams, right? I do. I have a Williams 12 string that I play quite a bit.
0: Oh, it's a 12. Okay. And so is that your main recording and touring acts as far as pedal steel goes?
1: I have. Yeah. I haven't really been using the Emmons guitars on tour. Um, I've been using the Williams, but I record a lot with the Emmons and I, um, I also more recently, uh, got an, an, an infinity, a 12 string and I'm just starting to use that one, uh, in the studio. I haven't used it in a live situation. But with Jackson Brown, when I played pedal steel, I've been using pretty much exclusively the Williams
0: right so what is it in the studio that draws you back to the emmons over and over again? just the sound and the feel of it?
1: uh maybe it's just the way it sometimes can sit in a track, you know And maybe it uh, um, but I' you know i I like different pedal steel just like you know I also like like the different sounds of you know different electric guitars you know they yeah. they all have a, a uh, their own you know quality
0: yeah it's just a lot harder to to pack six pedal steels to a session than it is to, to pack six tellies <laughs>
1: yeah. well i don't usually i don't i certainly don't take that manual mostly i just take one you know but okay. but my Ammons guitars the ones that i use in the studio are double necks, and so one of the reasons i don't you know tend to drag them around uh, is only if I'm using cartage, if I have a cartage situation, or if I'm going to be parked in a in, a, in a, on a project for a week. Yep. You know, then I'll make sure that I have an Emmons there.
0: Right, right. Um, and is would that be like a '60s or a '70s Emmons, or what sort of era is that?
1: The ones that I have are they're from the late '60s. One says '66, and it's a um a bolt on. Okay. And the other one is a is the later one, '68. Okay they're both from the sixties, but they have they, they have two different it's the split finger i think or what they whatever they call the one where there's the you know that has the split yeah the the, the last version of the push pulls is the sixty eight
0: have you owned any of those emmons since like they were brand new guitars no
1: <laughs> no i wasn't i was not playing pedal steel in nineteen sixty eight
0: Okay, so tell me about when you tell me about when you started playing steel. Um, you were a guitar player first, but tell me a little bit about your like really early history with starting guitar, and then how you got into playing steel. Uh,
1: well, I started playing guitar when I was about thirteen, and I don't think I started playing pedal steel till I was maybe twenty-three. So when I got my first, so, uh, you know, about ten years after, I, I think I played lap steel for maybe. Three or four years before I got a pedal steel, Dobro, and you know other kinds of slide things, you know that you play on your lap. But um, um, the pedal steel, yeah, I started. I got my first pedal steel. It was a MSA. I mean, a first actual. I got a sort of a homemade job. <laughs> for, I didn't make it, but I it, um, just for a couple hundred dollars, and then. But it was it was just something that somebody had put together in a garage somewhere, um, and that's I, just
0: that's never going to work well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, although people a lot of people did do those kinds of things back in the day. A lot of people experimented a lot and built their own pedal steels and you know, um, especially in Los Angeles. Right. And then I played that until um I the next guitar I got was an Emmons. Okay. Actually and I got that now that sixty six Emmons, the one that's that I've had the longest in uh, I actually got it in Nashville. Oh. I got it at Bobby Seymour's shop. I traded a 12 string Emmons, a 12-string Emmons that was made in probably 76 that I got new. I traded that guitar in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Must have been maybe 10 years later. Uh, I was in Nashville doing a record, and I, I think I probably just was on, t- getting tired of my pedal steel sound, and I went to Bobby's and I traded that one for this 66 Emmons. So I yeah so yeah you add my to answer the original question, that guitar that I got that I, the sixty six emmons I probably got in about nineteen eighty
0: eight. Oh okay, so that recently. Um, yeah. So you grew up in Los Angeles. Like, were you or the outskirts? Maybe can you just tell me about where exactly you were, like as a youngster when you when you started playing, and then and then what your experiences were like, like in your first bands or whatever.
1: Well, I started playing guitar. I was living in Fullerton in Orange County in my early teens, I guess 13. I started I picked up the guitar, started playing. First just acoustic guitar, folk music basically. And then uh just like everybody else, the Beatles happened and sure. And then there was you had to, and then and there was also a lot of surf music in Southern California and that was like a something that you had to have an electric guitar to play mm-hmm. i really got an electric guitar first uh to play instrumental surf music i think i was and and also you know the, the music of the day i was basically started playing in bands
0: what were your favorite like did you have some favorite surf guitar players
1: oh well you know dick dale obviously yeah. was a big deal you know and, especially in orange county in fact i think he his a neighbor of mine painted his guitars and actually painted my first fender mustang a custom really metal flake purple metal flake color which was really Racket. was really wicked in fashion in the time yeah but uh, within a year or two it was pretty much something that you wouldn't
0: want to be seen with Did you ever get a chance to see dick tail around there
1: yeah i saw him play yeah he played at this place called rendezvous ballroom down in uh Balboa, but I, you know, yeah, the, the, the bands that were playing—they were just all the surf bands, the local surf bands like the Bel Airs, Uh They had a hit called Mister Moto that everybody learned, and it was music that was on the radio,
0: really. Right, it was the hits of the day.
1: It was there was hits, there was music on the radio, and um, obviously the Ventures' "Walk Don't Run," their version of "Walk Don't Run" was really the song that kind of, even though it wasn't really surf music at all, it was just. Their, mu- their version of an of a, of a instrumental guitar song, which was really inspired by Dick Dale stuff. And you wouldn't call Dick Dale's music. I mean, not Dick Dale. I'm um, Dwayne Eddy. I'm sorry. You know, the Ventures music was really inspired by Dwayne Eddy's guitar instrumental. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't surf music, and neither was originally the Ventures. But then there was this kind of surf music fad that they kind of rode and started playing surf instrumentals.
0: At that point, were you keen on, like, any blues or country music? Like, were you hearing that stuff, or were you just kind of hearing, like, surf and, and, and early Beatles stuff around, around on the radio at that point?
1: Just what was on the radio. You know, I mean, there was country music on TV. On, you know, there were some shows that you could sometimes see. But, you know, there were, you know, I'm, you know, the, the country music was being played in bars. I was not some places where I could basically get into you know, I wasn't going to country bars at the age of fourteen or fifteen. <laughs> yeah. in terms of being exposed to it, I really, you know, just like a lot of people that grew up during that time, um, you know my my real influences that sort of drove me into country music were the were the country, the folk rock and the country rock.
0: Like sort of the late six late sixties when like Dylan started doing the Nashville albums and stuff like that. You mean? It was really
1: more the the birds were were certainly before Bob Dylan did that. The birds were playing. There was country influences on their records really early, like sixty. Even their second album has "Satisfied Mind" on it, right? Which is like a classic country song. So I mean, they mm-hmm. were doing country music in nineteen sixty-five um, right away, almost couple albums later, you know, Clarence White was playing on their records, and that was that, Notorious Bird Brothers. That Clarence White guitar sound was, and he wasn't credited, and you didn't know who was playing the sound, but those kind of sounds were, were, you know, they were coming into my ears, you know, through the music that I was listening to. Uh And by the time Sweetheart of the Rodeo came out, those sounds were already around, you know. The Dillards were making, you know, bluegrass rock records, and and, um, that music was was pretty prevalent, and to somebody like me that always like sort of was drawn to more folk music and traditional music, I think it was that that just had a. I mean, I wouldn't say that the the country conventional what you might call country music on the radio didn't really enter into my awareness until I started hearing some of the music, um, some of the songs that were that I was exposed to by people like Graham Parsons. Uh huh. Basically, once you knew where that stuff was coming from, all you had to do was, like, go to the source. And then, you know, then you wanted to hear the source. So Merle Haggard, you know, I mean, it, I got Merle Haggard's greatest hits immediately, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I was really starting to listen to a lot of the sounds that were on those records. And that's the pedal steel really became, was was prominent. But it was also prominent on a lot of um rock records of the time. Like you mentioned, Bob Dylan, yeah, that, sure that um, Nashville Skyline, you know, has got a lot of pedal steel on it. But um, I mean, I think one of the albums that really drew me into the sound of pedal steel is long before I ended up, I started playing it, was the Judy Collins album. Um, who knows where the time goes.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that one to me before and I checked it out and it's incredible. Is it, Who's playing steel on that record? Buddy Emmons. Oh, it is. Okay. Around the time that you started playing steel, like were there, um, like was JD Man- Maness around and like, I guess sneaky Pete was around. Like who, who would have been around LA in those days?
1: Oh yeah, they were around, but I didn't know them. I, I didn't meet them or anything like that. I wasn't like, uh, I didn't, there there were a lot of pedal steel players around. There was also a lot of people that were my age that were learning pedal steel probably around the same time. In terms of seeing pedal steel players, uh, yeah, I mean, I, the first pedal steel players that I really saw uh, were in the bands that I was going to see, which included the Flying Burrito Brothers and Sneaky Pete and uh, Poco, Rusty Young, Rusty Young. Yeah, they were. It was. It was. The, it were those. Those were the players, you know, that I was first seeing live. And but then I was also hearing a lot of, you know, music on records. Uh, so I wasn't really, I didn't get to see these people live. And, you know, until I could really go into a bar and, and sit and watch a country band play, I wasn't a- really able to, just to see, just the sort of journeyman pedal steel players. And I, eventually I ended up seeing quite a few of those.
0: Uh uh-huh. Probably some really good ones too, right?
1: Great. They're nameless. I mean, I'll never know who they were, but I was, I don't think I ever heard one that I didn't think was great, you know, <laughs> Totally. that had day jobs and then at night they would, Play in country dance. Yeah, Weekend Warriors. Yeah, exactly. And there were so many country uh, clubs that were uh, in Southern California. There were so many places like that that people played at. And eventually, you know, when, when I did start playing pedal Seal, I started playing in a lot of those same kind of places too.
0: So were you spending a lot of time like in pretty hardcore country bands, like playing around Southern California? That like, or, you know, when in your early mid twenties, kind of.
1: Well, I did do that. Yeah, well, it was it was including, uh, but I did that as also while I was doing other things. You know, I was also you know, I was playing in a rock and roll band. And,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know, I was in a band that got a record deal, and I, and at the same time, I was playing in a country bar like six nights a week, which was where I was. You know, which was how I was making a living then. You know. I was that's basically how I was, because the band that I was playing in that signed of the record deal was making records, but not uh, money.
0: Not making any cash. So w- was that the Funky Kings?
1: Yeah. And then before that, I was I went on tour with this uh, singer, John Stewart. In, uh, and so I had done some touring prior to that. And in between tours, I was playing, you know, and whatever kind of jobs I could pick up. But I was, you know, by that time, I'd played in enough bars and I guess been playing pedal steel for maybe two years at that time. Yeah. I started playing in 73. I got my first actual real pedal steel and I, I was touring with Johnson Stewart in 75. Okay. So,
0: so pretty quick. So what, like, how did you learn? Was it strictly just like listening to Merle Haggard records and figuring out sneaky Pete solos? Like, w- did you ever have a teacher or were you just like diving in full tilt and figuring it out for yourself?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I I did not have a teacher. I didn't know anybody else that played personally when I was learning. Uh, I wish I had. It would have been nice to have somebody, you know, to to um, you know tell me, you know, you know what I was doing wrong. <laughs> uh, but um, I kind of had to figure that out the slow way, and uh, and so I basically just yeah, I I, I used records just like oh. everybody did back then. And learned to play by ear. And um, there was very little instructional material. And there was, a. by the time...
0: Was that Winnie Winston book out by then?
1: Yeah, the Winnie Winston book, I can't remember when it came out, but it was around that time that was available. I don't remember. I think I was playing first, but it, it came out. And then also, the other... Maurice Anderson had a... Uh, who was a Texas pedal steel player that played a lot of out of Dallas. And uh, he was... MSA was a company that he was associated with. So my, so my uh, first pedal steel, um, I was aware. He had a, a little instructional tablature thing with, with some vinyl records, some, like three records, three songs that you could mm-hmm. learn off of tablature. I remember had, and that was, um, there, but there, and then, you know, there was probably a lot of stuff that subsequently was released, but I sort of didn't really go that route uh, and, and devour instructional material. Because once it started to become uh, widely available and people started publishing it, I mean this was obviously way before the internet. I I was just, uh, you know, I was just playing, uh, and and
0: yeah, you had gigs.
1: I was maybe not diving into the into the learning part of it as much as I was just playing a lot, and I was also playing guitar a lot and playing in groups where I wasn't playing pedal steel. So I I don't really I didn't always sit there and you know, work on the pedal steel, and that, that there was periods when it, I would use it more and less, and I was, you know, trying to pick up, you know, skills on other instruments, too, and mm-hmm. so I, I didn't, I, I think the pedal steel for me was just, I think I didn't really treat it like somebody that was just going to go in and, and become, you know, the world's greatest pedal steel player. I just liked the instrument, and frankly, I think one of the reasons that I learned how to play it was because I didn't know anybody else that played it. I, I actually just liked to have that sound uh-huh. that I was associated with, and I, if I hadn't known a really great pedal steel player, I think I would have just been happy to stand there, play guitar, <laughs> and and let him play pedal steel and just listen to him play. Which <laughs> later on, you know, I did get to get to do that quite a bit because I did end up ultimately getting to meet and play with JD Manis and a little bit with Sneaky Pete and and other other people that I really admired there playing. And, uh, yeah. So, but yeah, there's that era of, uh, you know, and there was a lot of pedal steel, like I said, a lot of people like my age doing the same thing. And there was a lot of people influenced by that music to pick up the pedal steel, um, uh, in Los Angeles. And I'm sure in a lot of other places too.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause there's, there's not a, not a hell of a lot of pedal steel players around Los Angeles. As, me, or as much these days i don't think or if they are they're kind of under the radar i guess but um but i think back then there was sort of a a renaissance of of pedal steel probably due to that music being really popular
1: i think so yeah i think it's it's true and uh and there was probably a lot more work a lot more places to play and yeah and you know people were young and they didn't They weren't worried about whether they could, eventually people, everybody had to figure out, well, is this something that I can do for the rest of my life? And a lot of people were living in Los Angeles, moved, a lot of people that I, you know, I could name a few, but, you know, there's a lot of great pedal steel players that live in Los Angeles at one time, and they're still playing, but they live in Nashville now. Al Perkins.
0: Oh, Al Perkins, yeah.
1: Sure, I could name Al Perkins, Steve Fischel. Dan Dugmore.
0: And so these guys would all have been, like, would they have been playing in bands around the same time as you playing in your bands in LA? Yes. So tell me a bit about the Funky Kings. That's a band that it's pretty hard to find any information about that band. So what can you tell me about the Funky Kings?
1: Well, the the band was a very short lived band. You know, it only was Uh together for about a year and a half in its original personnel. It was, it was, Formed by really three songwriters, Richard Steckel, uh, Jewel Shear, and Jack Templeton, who were mutually admired each other's songs, and um, you know decided to put a band together and um, played a few shows around L.A. And um, I wasn't—I think when they originally came up with the concept, I mean, I, Richard Steckel is a songwriter that I had met before. He was the only one of the guys in the band that I knew prior to the band forming. Um, and I and the drummer I also knew Frank Codenola. but they um, Richard. It was rich. Really, Richard formed the band around people that he wanted to be in a band with. So he basically kind of handpicked this band to be you know. Um, but it was it was really based around the mutual admiration of these three songwriters, and they had sort of a magical coming together and singing each other's songs and harmonizing and um, and Richard just sort of. He had been talking to me about being in a band with him before. He was in a band called Honk that was a very popular band out of Orange County that had, was touring nationally at the time, and had, okay. had made several albums. Uh, he was the songwriter and guitar player of that band. When they broke up, he formed this other band, and um, basically we just we we went and made some demos. We got a we got a, a audition for Clive Davis, and he immediately decided he wanted to sign the band. So. We signed to Arista Records and went in the studio, made an album, produced by Paul Rothschild.
0: Really? Yeah, and then who was the Doors producer, right?
1: Yeah, well, he's he produced a lot of people. He, he produced Paul Butterfield Blues Band. You know, he was.
0: Oh right.
1: He was a prominent fixture on the folk scene in uh, on the East Coast and produced a lot of people for Elektra for Jack Holtzman's label. Okay. Ultimately, the Doors and Love and and. Some bands like that, but he in in you know that were done in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, he's a legendary producer, and he produced that record that we made. We made one album. We went on tour when the record came out, and when we went in the studio to make a second record, the band kind of imploded or fell apart basically.
0: Oh shit! So yeah, that
1: happens. Eh? Most of it, most of it had to do with like record company pressure, not having another single, not you know that type. It's a, it's a long story that's not really worth getting into. Uh, <laughs> but it was just a. You know, it was a great band, and it had a lot of potential. But
0: yeah, the, that's the the story of many bands. It was like never, ne- never really. Yeah. So it it, but it, I did play a lot of pedal steel in that
1: band, and it was unusual use of it at the time. And I was playing a lot of country music, which was not really related at all to what that the band there was. No country influences in that group. So I, I would say, you know, it was just I, I was learning how to, and I, what I've always done, just played different, you know, different kinds of music. But it was a great. Uh, way of using being able to use the pedal steel in a in a format where it wasn't being required to be uh, used in a in a traditional way. You know, in fact, it was the, the job was to do it not that way. It was almost like right. I would. It would have been a lot easier if somebody had to put a guitar in my hands and said, "Okay, you're going to play guitar," <laughs> playing on the record guitar. But I but live, I only played steel. So
0: uh, oh really? Okay. Yeah, that
1: was the basic. Con, you know, concept of the band was just electric guitar, pedal steel, bass, and well, I played lap steel as well. So you know, this steel guitar—it's a—it's like a really a four-piece band that had also yeah. three singers. You know?
2: Yeah. Okay. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: so so after that band kind of imploded, that sort of marks the beginning of your career as a session guy. And I don't know, like... I don't know. I just, there wasn't a lot of sessions for a while. <laughs> was it a little dry for Like, what happened after that?
1: I just kept working, kept playing music.
0: You Ar- know. Around LA mostly?
1: Yeah, in, a, in the Los Angeles area. But I didn't just all of a sudden jump into being a studio musician.
0: So what was the path that led up to playing with Katie Lang? Because that's something that took up a huge chunk of years for you and and was a pretty massive project what what led up to hooking up with her
1: I'm just you know just being recommended i was recommended to play on a television show with her uh-huh. you know so i met her doing a tv show it was actually a, a smothers brothers show it was like a variety show that she was a guest on it oh really yeah and they needed to steal that she had just recorded a record called shadowland in nashville and it had steel guitar on it, and they needed a steel guitar player to play on the show because she didn't have one in her band at the time. So mm-hmm. that's how I met her. And then, you know, we hit it off very quickly. She thought that she'd like to have that, that instrument in her band. And uh, I didn't actually work with her for about another year live, but I did do some more TV shows and did a record with her, and then ultimately went on tour with her after the uh, record. this record called Absolute Torch and Twang. Right, and but I, you know, I hadn't really played live with her up to that point, except for maybe sitting in with her once or twice.
0: Where did he make that record, the Torch and Twang record? In Vancouver, around that time, you know, like in the eighties and stuff, and in, and in the nineties, you, you did spend a lot of time in Canada. Was that sort of the Katie Lang connection? And the she was managed by Bumstead, which was based in Vancouver. So was that like a was that the western canadian connection because you spent time in calgary edmonton vancouver quite a bit right
1: yeah mostly in vancouver okay kd was living in vancouver so at that point by that time i was
0: you know we recorded
1: in uh it was a couple albums that were recorded maybe three because i think she recorded the the soundtrack to um even cowgirls get the blues was recorded in in vancouver too there was a number of uh, records recorded there three i think that i worked on and then rehearsals sometimes would be up there i you know i mean i i did spend quite a bit of time in vancouver but not that much and and we did tour canada back in that period of time yeah a little bit more prominently after, it seemed like after the first by the time she did on there was didn't seem like there was that much touring in canada
0: she outgrew it yeah
1: she was touring you know going to Europe more and you know spreading out
0: what do you remember about like say the the Torch and Twang record like how was that done did she like to work kind of live with the band or like would she spend days and days on her vocals like her vocals are so intense like how did she record those
1: uh they were recorded you know we were all playing together pretty much I mean I don't think every song was not everybody in the band at once you know um but when I was playing on the songs, I think most of them I do remember live tracking. So we were we were we definitely recorded live. Okay, I can, what? I, can I remember specific songs like Three Days, that Willie Nelson song. Yeah, I know that was really Full Moon, Full of Love. I remember recording particular songs. Mm-hmm. I have very you know clear memory, of, but it was a long time ago, so I don't remember every track. And but mostly I would say on that record up. Yeah, it's pretty much everybody's playing live, and certainly her. She's singing live. I mean, she may have, you know, gone back in as people do and worked on vocals, but uh, you know, every vocal of hers it sounds incredible to me. So yeah,
0: it really does. But but for the most part, like when you were tracking as a band, she was right in there with you. Oh yeah,
1: oh she was always there when we were tracking. There was no playing a song, no KD.
0: So you toured with KD off and on for years right yeah
1: uh, yeah but she took t- tended to take pretty long hiatuses between tours so but i did do a lot of her tours after that not everyone i didn't do the all you can eat tour and then i started i worked with her again on the drag tour and then she made a record called invincible summer and i did that tour and then later on she did the hymns of the 49th parallel the, the canadian uh you know songwriters record mm-hmm. that she um and i toured with her during that period and i know she's been out doing this twenty fifth. 25th anniversary of ingenue so it has been quite a while
0: another canadian artist that you've worked with more in her latter part of her career but you sort of told me a little bit about her um before but i've you know her process is super fascinating but joni mitchell um i know you played on some of the stuff of hers in the last 15 years like early 2000s or something maybe can you tell me a little bit about working with her
1: i always overdub on okay. all the, and all the I think the three albums that I worked on first, hers, they were tracks, just like, you know, you commonly do in recording situations when you're doing an overdubbing session. They were pretty conventional from that standpoint. They're just, you know, in terms of uh, what I was playing to, they were fully realized tracks. You know, I think there was one record where she hadn't done her vocal yet. Okay. And, you know, where there was not her, she hadn't actually finished the song yet and I played on, but that was, that's really rare. And she pretty much always and that was their last record the one that's called Shine there was just on that and that was yeah that was in the 2000s the other ones I did with her were
0: in the 90s and and with somebody like that where the the chord structure is totally unconventional and 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 well just strange chord progressions would you have to like really figure out how to approach those as a as an instrumentalist around that
1: I mean I could hear what the general the harmony mean the, the the general chord progression it's not it's not so much that you can't understand what it is it's just that there's a lot of extensions in the right. chord so which really creates this kind of a landscape an oral aural you know what I mean like a sound yeah. that is that you have to interact with and when you're playing with something that has a lot of extensions like that, like her open tuning, um, it's not always that easy to figure out what kind of thing is going to work with it. You just sort of have to experiment and and, and play along with it and see it. I, I, it wasn't the kind of thing where I could hear a, a song and go, I know what's going to work on this. <laughs> so it, didn't really, it wasn't like you could come up with a part I, is what i'm trying to say because apart with there's no way from at least in my that i play music that i could listen to something and go i know this is going to work over that over those chord changes but the actual process of doing it with her really is very much like i would say playing even though you're not playing live with her um, when in the recording studio i uh-huh. it was very much like reacting in the moment to what you're hearing so you may have more than one chance because you're going to do multiple takes to see, you know, as you're experimenting. But each take is a performance and that's how she would hear it. You're basically performing along with it and then some. They're out of that performance is going to come some colors or some that she can actually use in her painting if you want to think of the song as a painting. Right. And, uh, and you know, you're, you may not be able to just play the song through one time and and have what she wants but if she is hearing things that she wants that you're playing in there then I mean that's basically what it what was going on is that uh, I mean the first time I I did a a song where there was a song called uh on the borderline and uh, or the borderline and it's on this album,
0: Turbulent Indigo. Yeah.
1: So when I did that song, I, you know, I mean, I, as far as I knew, that would be the only time I'd ever worked with Joni Mitchell. You know, but as it turns out, she brought me back a, a few weeks later and did, and I did another song. And then a couple of years later, there was another album and, yeah, brought me in to do some more songs on that. And then there was a tour, you know. So and then uh, quite a few years after that, she made another album. And she called me in to do that. So she was apparently hearing something in my playing that she liked to. That worked for her. That worked for her. Great honor for me to be able to play with her in that. And for her to actually have me come back and, and do things. And I, but I think it's, a lot of it is just you know, trying to be. You know, you're, you're really trying to not get in the way of what you're hearing.
0: I mean, that's no kidding. That that's that would be the real challenge with her is like not stepping on the vocal in any way and sort of navigating those crazy changes to a and being musical at the same time. That's hard, man.
1: Yeah, I guess it is hard. I don't really know what what it is that I don't know any any way of describing how to do it. You know, I don't know yeah. what it is what that I even do. I mean, I, the other day we were in the studio working on something. That, uh, we're working on this project with uh charles lloyd and uh and lucinda williams doing some stuff together and uh oh cool i was doing something where i was we were doing another take or anyway don was was producing said something about nobody does what you do and and i don't know what that you know i don't know what it is that i do
0: <laughs> so, you know just keep it, doing it
1: somebody very important to me said something you know a while back that i it, it just uh you have to be yourself because everybody else is taken.
0: <laughs> Wise words.
1: You can. It is, and it's really true. You know, you don't. You just have to be who you are. And musically, for me, it just it is. It's it's not really clear how my pro, what my process is where things work. You know, and mm-hmm. it's sometimes because to me, a lot of times they seem like they don't work. So I know I'm. It's a <laughs> challenge, and I'm.
0: I think that's a that's something that m- most musicians struggle with so you mentioned Lucinda Williams and she's somebody that you've worked with a lot, both as a player and as a producer. And I, and I just wanted to ask you about your production side and maybe specifically in the case of Lucinda Williams, like that record, I know you've done two with her recently. Um, I only have one of them where the spirit meets the bone and it's, it's killer. And especially how the, there's, there seems to be a distinct, like two guitar interplay going on, on, on a lot of the songs. That's like very sonically divided to the left and right, Hand of this of the pan spectrum, but I'm I, also there's just like killer energy, and the tones are great, and she seems to be really like delivering energetically. I'm just wondering how you approach a project like that as a producer, and if you could just tell me a bit about how you like to dive into a project like that with her.
1: Well, I, as a producer, I I think I I probably approach things very much the way I do as a player. You know, I, I a lot of it is about figuring out how to stay out of the way of the song and make, let the song just, you know, exist and have its own, you know, entity and play it. I mean, on all this stuff that, uh, with Lucinda Williams, I'm playing at the same time we're tracking. So I'm not really doing any kind of super visorial, um, work, you know, I'm not like mm-hmm. overseeing the creation of the music in any way, you know, just the fact that I'm you know I, I did I did follow up on everything and make sure everything was you know there's a certain amount of quality control that goes on and there was some overdubbing um, and some changing things around on that record even though it's it is very much tracked as a live band and there is a lot mm-hmm. of guitar interplay on it but in terms of you know you're really just part of uh, of a of an environment in the studio that you know you you uh kind of allowing things to happen naturally.
0: Getting the right people in the room at the same time and all that.
1: Getting the right people in the room at the same time. And, you know, there's, and and really letting, in Lucinda's case, kind of letting her own process of of realizing the song in the moment happen. So she has to basically get to the point where she's comfortable enough to deliver the song uh-huh. at record everything that she's doing is live so she's basically there's no vocal overdubs there's no
0: yeah i can't imagine you're you're gonna sit her in a vocal booth for nine hours <laughs> overdubbing her vocals right
1: right no there's none of that i mean you're talking about going in for a for a, for a session and recording a couple of songs um, and making you know and having everything go down live and then you know listening to multiple tracks and trying to decide which take is is the best one possible and and, and there's a lot of um, artist intuition going on in a situation like that that you have to be open to. So I suppose that's part of the role of a producer as being, right. is really paying a lot of attention to the artists uh, and letting their uh, instincts kind of go, even if they go to the wrong, let, let them go somewhere where they can. Because it's going to find itself eventually. You know, you kind of just have to trust that that that's going to happen. It's so a ride sometimes it seems like it's, you know, it can it can be like a roller coaster. But um,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: I, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there, we did do two. There is two projects that were that were um, a lot of the music on those two projects was recorded. Most of it was recorded around the same period. And a lot of the songs that are on the second album were recorded even before the ones on the first album.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
1: the second, the, um, partially because of the song, some of the song sonically, uh, and also partly because um, what some of the songs are about. And then she wrote some more songs to kind of, uh, that needed to be written for her in order to make that second album. But they're both double albums, so they both have a lot of songs on it.
0: Well, Spirit Meets the Bone is a triple album.
1: <laughs> is it? I guess, well, I guess it is. On vinyl,
0: yeah, <laughs> right? On, yeah, 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 it's
1: long. It's, it's a double CD is what I meant. So, it's yeah, it's got 20 songs, I think. And and uh, the Ghost of Highway 20, which is the other one that, that you don't have, that has like 14 songs, and there's some of them are very long. But the thing about Ghost of Highway 20 is one of the other things is that Bill Frizzell played on a lot of the songs that we recorded with Lucinda, and we saved a lot of the ones that Bill played on so that there's a sonic consistency on the second record. So
0: okay.
1: Ghost of Highway 20 is, is more a live record than Downward Spirit Meets the Bone, in the sense that there aren't any overdubs at all on on uh, Ghost of Highway 20. The whole record is just recorded with, and it's, um, there is a couple of songs I think that Bill's not on, but it's almost all Bill and myself playing.
0: Awesome, and then and then on the other record, it's more. I think it's Doug Pettibone plays the other guitar, right?
1: No, a lot of it is Val McCallum. Okay. And Stuart Mathis, who's Lucinda's present live guitar player. Oh. So it's Stuart and uh, mostly Stuart and Val, and then there's two songs that Tony Joe White, like I'm playing one of the guitars on all the songs, and then the other guitar is split between those three. And there's I think there's one song that Doug is playing on yeah as well okay but he, he was brought in later to overdub on something oh i see but we did do so we did do uh background singing together so doug's singing on the record as well
0: okay and th- and so you're like you go way back with lucinda you worked with her a lot i don't know how much touring you did with her but i know you've done a fair amount of playing and gigs and stuff is that like do you guys get along really well in the studio too is that an important thing for you as a producer just having a personal Relationship with somebody?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I get along fine with Lucinda. I mean, I, you know, you're she's, you know, I mean, she's an incredibly talented songwriter. And, you know, I mean, her process can be challenging because it's um, she's figured out how she wants to do things now. And she got I, I think it took her a long, long time to get to the point where she can use the studio the way that she is comfortable with. And that for her really is that she is trying to capture everything live. She, she doesn't want there to be a lot of extra. Yeah. She doesn't want there to be, you know, a, a, a lot of, anal, you know, analyzing and it, she wants to, she wants to basically hear back what it is and know that it's, it's right. It's feeling that it's the right thing when it's happening. Uh-huh. So that's her process. And that's what makes her happy when, when it gets to be that, and then, you know, she, then she has to learn afterwards to like it, you know, because right. she has to go back and listen to it later and still feel that way. And I think that if it, it, if it doesn't, if she's not really sure about it early on, she's not going to like it later. And that's, the, that's been a big part of the problem with her, I think, I mean, maybe in the past with other projects that she's done. And these, the records that I worked with her as a co-producer on, um, you know, I, I was able to kind of see, cause I did do some recording with her years ago and when she was still trying to find her process
0: uh-huh.
1: and uh, now she's found it and she seems to be very comfortable in the studio.
0: Yeah. There's sort of a, a vibe and a, and a sound to her recent projects that's totally unique and, and obviously is, is a thing for her. And, and it's a way that that she's found of expressing herself. And it's really cool, but having you kind of guide the sonics of it, I think is, is really important because that uh, the, those two elements together made, you know, pretty incredible records, I think.
1: Yeah. And also she has a, you know, she has a very, um, she has a great band and she's been using her live band on, you know, a lot of the recording projects. You know, the most recent project that she's done, which I also worked with her on, although I didn't not as a producer, Mm-hmm. But it just played guitar on, on the whole record. Um, and she remade the record Sweet Old World. Oh, really? Yeah, she re-recorded the whole album. Really? Yeah, with um, a four-piece band, with, with her regular band, with Stuart Mathis on guitar and myself. Uh-huh. Yeah, Recorded all 12 of the songs and, and, and four bonus tracks. And I think it's coming out the next week. It's already on. I mean, you can find some of it on Spotify now.
0: Wow. So what was her reasoning for that? She just felt like they were great songs that weren't recorded the way she wanted them or something?
1: Well, you'd have to ask her. I'm sure there's plenty of interviews where she'll probably tell you, but I think it's the one record that she feels like she just didn't get right. Huh. And uh, for whatever reasons. And there was a couple of different versions of that record recorded even back then. So I think it it was... um, you know, just a record that she's that it has great songs, but she wasn't comfortable with the way it was recorded. Um, yeah.
2: yeah,
1: she did record things differently back in those days, and she never played guitar on any of her, her early records. And I, I don't think until she worked on Car Wheels on Gravel Rose the first time that she played guitar on her own records.
0: You know, so. right? And that's a that's a big part of her thing is like her vocal phrasing and all that stuff is like tied into her her r- rhythm playing you know so i think that's a, a huge realization really is being able to know
1: yeah it's not something that she needs to that she needs to do but it's something that she needs to do to find where the song is in the studio sometimes so i mean on a lot of the songs that we've recorded with her she would start out playing the guitar and we would sort of figure out everything and then at a certain point it was always her that would go you know i don't think i want to play guitar on this and oh, then really? she would, but yeah and then on other songs, she would just play guitar through the whole song, and it would be that's the way it would go down. She needed to have somebody give her permission to do that. <laughs>
0: and it, you're that guy.
1: Which didn't really happen, I think, until Steve Earle worked with her, and then he right. basically gave permission to play guitar. And, and then it was, it was from that point on, she probably, you know, it, you know she doesn't always do it, but she wants to be able to that's how she wrote the song. That's right. that way. She wrote the song that way. She's gonna, you know, if she can start out the process that way. That's so that's one thing that you know you just you find the song. I've worked with her with different drummers, different bass players, and different guitar players, and and no matter who you're working with, that she she's pretty much got her own process, and everybody adapts to it.
0: One more person that I, I wanted to kind of talk about your your longish relationship with, and that it sort of ties into the L.A. scene of. Of I guess like two thousand onwards maybe, uh, and that's John Bryan, somebody who I I have a lot of admiration for, and and you've been kind of tied into that whole scene at Largo. You've played there a lot, and and I I, I would imagine met a lot of people th- that way. Some of the younger people that have come through, like the Watkins and all that, and um I you've also played on Meaningless of that record of his that sort of came out and sort of didn't. And, mm-hmm. uh, and some soundtracks like Punch Drunk Love. I'm just wondering if you could tell me some a, a few of your experiences working on some of his music, maybe, you know, like f- from 10 years ago or something when he was more um, prevalent as an artist. I know he's doing more soundtracks now, but um, back in those days, you were playing a lot with him and, and doing a lot of sessions. Um, what, were, what was that whole era like for you?
1: I, I think I met him originally. I don't even try to remember. I don't really remember I think it was definitely through in in through the Largo scene because he was already involved at Largo and I was starting to go there and we were you know just ended up playing together mm-hmm. in situations and then John would ask me to come in and sit in and play with him. And yeah there there haven't been there have been very very few recording projects really that I worked with him on. It's just a handful but um uh, uh you know he's just an incredibly musical musical and instinctive guy you know it just he has a an amazing talent you know it's like he's one of these people that you just when you hear him playing whatever instrument he's playing everything that's coming out of the guy is like it's phenomenal it's phenomenal you know so i you know the fact that he you know has that there's you know that he likes that he will ask me to come and play with him in that kind of any context is uh it's really you know Pretty humbling, actually. You know, I,
0: it's cool too that that you play the the seemingly the one instrument that he actually doesn't play, <laughs> which is helpful too.
1: Well, <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I, I think. Uh, but the thing about John is, you know, he he, it's not even that. I mean, I remember one time I, he was just like he yeah, is. I don't care what you play. Just, mm-hmm. it's not really like you know that he. And that's the thing about I, I think um, I don't know how to put this, but you know, people when they develop relationships where you trust another musician to to have the right I don't know to to, to play something that's going to be contribute to the to the song, but not you know, but but just make it better.
0: Yeah, without taking it over. Yeah. Uh,
1: then it doesn't really matter what instrument you're playing. You know, I right. mean, if it's the thing you're going to approach anything that you do the same way
2: yeah
1: and so you get that that's what happens i think in the studio sometimes you people once people think of you that way they may just say well i don't what do you hear on this you might want to play something else you know they you might get in the door as a as a whatever instrument that you people know you as playing but you know ultimately i mean you're a multi-instrumentalist so you know what i'm talking about but you know you, a lot of times it's just Developing the trust right that you're uh whatever instrument you play, and then it might be wrong, you know and you ought to pick up a different guitar, a different type of instrument and play it I mean a lot of times uh, it's not the right thing you know you have to, to abort the the <laughs> the omission and totally and start over and try something different.
0: do you remember working with him on the Punch drunk love soundtrack, and I asked that one because for me like Around the time that that came out, I was getting really into old Hawaiian music, and you guys, I don't know how hard you worked on it, but like you recreated some of that old 20s Hawaiian stuff like really well and really amazingly. I'm just wondering if you can tell me how that came about and what the process was like for that.
1: Well, I, I, what I remember about that is, was actually really cool, is that uh, they had decided, John had decided that he wanted to try and you know make it, it sound like an old recording. So you know the job was to learn the song you know and and play it like that but but really the difficult part of it was to get the right to get it right sonically and yeah i think what, what the original attempt was to get it to record it on a wire recorder and they actually i think John I I, I remember him having like maybe three different wire recorders that he'd gotten tried to create like out of the three one that would work you know, like the different you know aspects, and it couldn't, and we just i don't think I just ultimately it just did not work and okay. I remember that I did bring a number of instruments, so we'll just bring whatever you have this old down there, and we'll try to find <laughs> and try to get the sound and but it, it was it was a combination of the instrument learning the song, you know yeah, yeah, which I think I did do a little homework the night before uh and um uh, well you and pretty then,
0: much nailed nailed the 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 sound. Like yeah, you must have learned it.
1: I learned it. Yeah, I, I definitely sat and learned, learned the original. Um it's what's the song? It's um
0: Moana Chimes. That's the one, yeah.
1: So I was looking for, you know, instruments that were right for the period, you know. So I think I had instruments, you know, Wise and and I had a Martin um you know, Koa Martin. I had like uh and I and I had a couple, you know, old I had an old uh National and a a dobro and and what the instrument that ended up working that i played on that is actually is this dobro it's a wood dobro that i it's probably made in the it was made in the 30s it would have been made in like uh, 37 Mm -hmm. something like that and it was an instrument I, i bought that instrument from somebody that got it from somebody that pulled it out of a dump site out in the desert Out in the desert, that had been that was just somebody had like it ended up in a basically in the garbage. Awesome. And and the instrument was very dried out, and it's just it's a round neck dobro, Uh it has the necks warped on it. And I just put a and I just had it set up as a you know, as a like a square neck dobro to play on my lap. Yeah, and uh, it's it just has this real old timey sound for one of a better. Way of describing it. it was the instrument that sounded more authentic than a than a, than a, a Hawaiian slide like a Weisenborn or a or a yeah. or a metal-bodied National or anything else that I had. It was the one that that you know sonically captured it, and I think they just they weren't able to use a wire recording, so they just sort of tried to
0: replicate that as well as they could. Yeah, I recorded, it. and yeah, I remember
1: it being really impressed by the way it came out.
0: <laughs> it is incredible, and, and you know that and,
1: kind of, that stuff is just so. I mean, you know, I learned to play lap steel before I played pedal steel, and you know, I to me, I think that's a it really helped me to be able to kind of think more melodically.
0: Yeah, because you're limited.
1: You know, there's a lot more limitations that when you play a, um, a six string instrument on your lap in, in a tuning, in an open tuning, and yeah. you. Thinking about you know about how to how to play melodies in a tuning. So then, whatever tuning you end up playing in, you're going to think that way.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Things and you have pedals that are changing things. You're still going to think the same way. You're going to still think of it as a lap steel that has more uh, options. You know, <laughs> right? So, you know, Hawaiian music was really is a very melodic music. It's and and, and it lends so, itself. That instrument is just something that... Um,
0: that brings that out.
1: It brings out that, you know, you're because you're restricted to playing more melodies, then the melody becomes more and more important. You know, pedal steel can, can be, you know, just being a, an accompany, and, uh, you know, it can accompany people. Mm-hmm. It's great for people like to use it for creating atmosphere, and, and you know, it, it has a place as a, you know, like I, I kind of, long for the days, you know, and a lot of, I'm sure a lot of old time guys feel, feel the same way where the steel guitar was really more, not so much an instrument that was supposed to blend into everything else, but, uh, and support it, but was more an instrument that was, uh, important as a melody, as a sound, as, as a key, you know, contributor to the, to the emotional impact of the song, you know, uh, and 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 almost like a fo- a foil for the vocal, something that the, that could play around the ball that 's why those old, old old country records are so great you know from the
0: totally you
1: no know, I mean you know we we know those players like that you know that sort of thrive during that period, people like Lloyd Green and buddy Emmons people like that it's really unfortunate that it isn't used more in that light now. But, you know, there's a lot of great music happening, and a lot of people are using it in, 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 in interesting, creative ways, and, you know, I've been playing it on some really interesting records lately, like, you know, pop records, even, like, I recently did a session, I played on this uh, girl, um, St. Vincent's, her new record, and...
0: Oh, she's great, eh? She
1: uses pedal steel in really interesting ways, and Florence and the Machine, I did some recording with them, and, there's a singer that lives in Nashville named Karen Elson who's got a, yeah. her new record. has got some nice stuff that I, I really like that I played. Oh, and, cool. Uh, I don't know. It just, it's, it's just nice to be you know, able to use it in stuff that's not necessarily what people like to pigeonhole as Americana. You know, that instrument is, if it's considered an Americana instrument, it limits its, you know.
0: Yeah, and you managed to find a, a way to to sneak it in there in very musical and cool ways. Um, I got to ask you about one, one last thing. I can do this all day and I won't, I won't keep you any longer. Uh, But you told me before about the session, uh, speaking of uh, Dobro and Lapsteel and stuff um, that you did for Gillian Welch, I don't know, in 2000 or something, Soul Journey. And I just found that really fascinating, partly because it's the only record I think really where those guys have used anybody else outside of the two of them playing together. Well, actually that's not true. The first first record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But soul journey, I think played Dobro on. And, and I think at at some point you mentioned to me that the whole record was recorded just using 57s. Is that, is that, am I remembering that right?
1: I remember there being 57s on everything when I was there. So they'd recorded the whole record that way. I don't know, but I do remember a fifty-seven on the Dobro, and I remember that. Uh, but I've heard of that people using fifty-sevens on other instruments before, like acoustic basses, even you know.
0: Sure. Yeah, it works great on basses. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think you know, it's. I, I
1: yeah, I don't know. I mean, David's a, he's a David Rawlings is something, you know. He's
0: yeah, he's he, an adventurous soul for sure. Well, he
1: he goes deep, you know, into yeah. <laughs> into the recording process and. And I'm sure he you know since then he's gone a lot deeper, so
0: was that done in Nashville at, at woodland yeah. and and do you remember much about recording those songs?
1: Mm, just that we were doing them live, you know we yeah. were playing live. I just remember that um, we were really just kind of all sitting there. I think Gillian was playing drums at
0: some point. She's a cool drummer, right?
1: Eh? Oh, yeah, and then David was playing drums, and you know they like to mix it up, and yeah, yeah, I love those people they're 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 so musical and they're so. The vibe of what the music that they create is you know was another thing that i 'm really fortunate to be able to have have worked with them. I really feel blessed about that
0: yeah well your 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 history is incredible, of course, and there's so many amazing projects you've been involved in it's just great to talk to you about some of them and get a few of the highlights there's so many but um, yeah, thanks so much for for telling me. About some of these things today, man. I I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day.
1: It's a great thing that you're doing. Um, I've seen that you've got you've got a lot of great people on 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 this podcast thing that you're doing. I, I, it's great. You know, you're like you're you're actually asking good questions, and I'm sure some people are probably fascinated by the you know some of the details behind behind this stuff.
0: So. I think people like it. People like to hear the weird stuff. Yeah. I hope I, hope
1: I haven't offended anybody. You know? <laughs> if, there, if there's at all any you know, hint of that, please edit it out.
0: Done. It's all gone. This interview is going to be three minutes long, man. <laughs> That was my conversation with Greg Lease. I sure hope you enjoyed listening to it. I sure hope you enjoyed the season of shows that I brought to you. With that, we're wrapping up season two, and I hope to be bringing you season three somewhere down the line. Don't be shy. Keep in touch. Just because the season's over doesn't mean things have totally wrapped up or anything. Uh, feel free to leave some comments, and I hope to uh, see you very soon for season three of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. makers and soul shakers is recorded at the hen house studio in nashville tennessee please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca thanks always to jeremy holmes in vancouver for his help with research and to michael glusak for editing music placement and mixing